Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For most of us, the book of Genesis is a lot like the movie, The Sound of Music. In The Sound of Music, there are two distinct acts. The first act has all the bangers, all right? It has do, re, mi, do, a deer, a female deer, re, you got it, yeah. It has a few of my favorite things famously sampled by John Coltrane, or composed, I don't know. Um, it has, um, I am 16, going on 17. Oh, we know it, we know it. Now someone sing me a song from the second half. Oh, you don't know any, because there aren't any. <laughs> all right, so here's the thing, here's the thing. There are all these, all these hits from the first half, I have no idea what's in the second half of that movie because I have never been awake during the second half of that movie. I have fallen asleep so many times right when the Nazis show up, all right? That's, I'm, I'm gone, I'm gone at that point, you know? I'm, I'm here for all the music. And that's a lot like how we treat Genesis sometimes. The first half has all the bangers. It has, uh, it has Adam and Eve, the creation story, the story of Noah, it has the Tower of Babel, it has Cain and Abel, all these classic stories that we learned as children, for most of us. And then the second half, the story slows down and it zooms in. It goes deep into the life of one man, that man's child and children, and that man's children. And we get 38 more chapters, so we've gone through 12 chapters so far, 11 chapters so far, of Genesis, and we've covered, you know, most of ancient history. Now, we're slowing down, and we're going to spend the rest of our time in Genesis for the next 38 chapters on about, you know, 100 years of history. And so it's, the story just dramatically slows down. And um, it's not as well known. Uh, some of us will, will be able to recognize some of these songs, like my friend uh, Michael over here knows the second half of The Sound of Music. Um, Better man than I, just like many of you might know the second half of Genesis, uh, and you might be familiar with some of these stories, but there will be some things that feel more unfamiliar as we move forward. When we left off before Advent, we covered the Tower of Babel, and we stopped halfway through the chapter of Genesis 11. If you look with me, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to Genesis chapter 11, and we're going to be going in and out of um, the scripture this morning, and so I, I will encourage you to follow along. But if you look at Genesis chapter 11, verse 10, uh, we get this nice little phrase, these are the generations of Shem. Shem is one of the children of Noah, and these are the generations. That is signifying that we have our favorite biblical form of literature Favorite genre, uh, genealogy. Give it up for the genealogies. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not going to go all the way through it. But when we get to a genealogy, what does that mean? When we think about genealogies in, gen in Genesis, the way that the author is using them here, 
we recognize it's time jump time, all right? We're going through 10 generations very quickly. The author is like, there's nothing to see here, all right? There's 10 generations where we're just gonna speed forward. I'm gonna give you the basic gist, and then we're gonna get to the end. And these, gener- these uh, generations, as we learned in the last genealogy, uh, they could be longer than what it says. It's just kind of basically a way for the author to say, sometime later. Sometime later, we're going to trace the line, and we get to verse 27, and it says this, 26, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And so finally, we get to Abram. Now, when you get to this man, Abram, one thing that I have to say before I preach on Abram is that in a couple of chapters, God is going to change his name to Abraham. Don't get too tripped up on that. Abram means father. Abraham means great father. It's basically like dad and and big dad uh, is is what God does as we do. And we'll look at why God changes his name uh, when we get to that passage in a few chapters. But when I preach on this, there is no way I'm going to stick to Abram the entire time. I've been calling him Abraham for way too long, and his name is going to be Abraham to me. It's, you know, I'm, I'm outside of the story. I know the full story. So I'm going to call him Abraham sometimes. Give me grace. I'm not perfect. His name is both, uh, Abram or Abraham. Just go with it. And uh, Abram appears at the very end of this genealogy. It's tracing it all the way to Abram, Terah's father, and then to Abram. But then when you get to Abram, it's a hard stop because verse 30 is tracing it to Abram. Verse 29, and Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. That is not something you read in a genealogy very often. The very point of a genealogy is to trace the lineage, the children. And so when you get to someone that has no child, that's like a dead end. It's a cold stop. And so we get to the end of this genealogy, and there's a dead end. And it dead ends into the person who we're going to be following for many, many weeks now. Abram's wife is barren. She has no child. Bible scholar Walter Brueggemann puts it like this. He says, the barrenness of Sarah, is an, whose Sarai's name will eventually become Sarah, Go with it, okay? Uh, The barrenness of Sarah is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. This text tells us there's no foreseeable future. There's no human power to invent a future. The human race and human history have just hit a dead end. It's over. And then God speaks, and there's hope again. Let's look at chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1. It says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Up until this point in the book, the world has been in this downward spiral of sin and destruction, of more and more chaos, more and more chaos. It has just continued to go worse and worse. People have been sent farther and farther away from the presence of God as humanity has made their travel eastward out of the garden, away from God. But then we're introduced to a single ray of hope through one man, one family line. God speaks to Abram, and he makes promises to Abram, promises to bless him and to keep him. 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, says the Lord. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Church family. It's really important for us here today to understand this, that we do not live in a world where our God is remote and distant. We do not live in a world where our God refuses to speak. We do not live in a world where our God is silent and unconcerned. We do not live in a world where God is just only after his own delight, only after his own being. We live in a world where our God makes and keeps promises. We live in a world where God speaks and he does what he says. Now that might not seem too astonishing to you, but that is really good news for us. That we don't live in a world where a God is remote and unconcerned, but we live in a world where our God speaks and he keeps his promises. The Australian theologian Graham Goldsworthy, he argues that these three verses in Genesis chapter 12 function as the thesis statement for the entire Bible. He says that this is the spine that you can draw throughout the entire scripture, that everything connects back to these three verses. And God's threefold promise. God promises to make Abram a great nation. God promises to give Abram a land. And he promises to bless Abram and all the peoples of the earth through Abram. If you're looking for the thesis for the Old Testament, look no further. It's right here. This promise picks up on a whole host of themes from earlier in Genesis. If you just want to think about God's promise here, it's so profound. It's picking up on all these themes that we've already looked at uh, throughout the book. And if you want to just go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Eden, God promised or he asked, commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. This is echoed here in God's promise to Abram to make him a great nation. God tells Adam and Eve to fill the earth. This is echoed in uh, Abram's promise to to receive a land. He's filling the earth, but then he tells them to fill the earth. They fail, and then he promises that I will fill the earth with you, Abram. I will make you into a great nation. And then he promises to bless Adam and Abram to make his name great. When we just look back one chapter, we find other people trying to make their name great. And how do these people make their name great? They collect together, they build a city, and they say, let us build a tower into the heavens so that people will see how great we are, so that we can make a name for ourselves. And now, here we are one chapter later, and God says, Abraham, Abram, I will make your name great. He is promising to make his name great. He's undoing the effects of the fall. He's promising him a land, which is the one thing that Noah didn't have during that time, the people of Noah's age. The land was covered, but God promises to give him a land. 
Humanity's been on this constant journey eastward since they were kicked out of the garden. So which direction does God call Abram to travel? He says, go west, back toward the promised land, and I will give you that land. Now, why does it matter that our God is a God that makes and keeps promises? Well, if he couldn't keep a promise, then he would be someone without integrity, someone that you can't trust, someone that you can't depend upon. And if you can't make a promise, then he would be someone without authority, meaning that you can't ask him to do anything because he can't do it. But our God is someone that has both integrity and authority. Our God is not an energy field created by all living things surrounding us, penetrating us, and binding the galaxy together. That's the force told by Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars uh, chapter 4. Okay? Our God is a personal God. He's a relational God. When people think of God, they oftentimes think of this being, it's way more force-like. Something you can't see, you can't talk to. But here we have a God who makes and keeps promises. He's a relational God. It tells you about who God is. The promises that you make define who you are. I want you to think about that for just a minute. The promises that you make define who you are. The promises that God makes defines who he is. And so if you want to understand who God is, look at the promises that he makes. Christopher Watkin in his book, Biblical Critical Theory, says it like this. He says, I am who I am because, of, because I make promises to myself and to others, sometimes explicit and sometimes implicit, and I keep those promises. Even if my desire were to change, even if I were to change my opinion or my inclination, I will hold firm. So the promises that we make define who we are. Sometimes those promises are explicit. I'm a married man because I stood in front of a group of people and I promised to my wife and before the Lord that I would be faithful to her for the rest of my life. That promise defines who I am. We also are defined by implicit promises that we make. For example, you might make the implicit promise that you will pursue success no matter the cost. And so, before you know it, you're staying awake all night long, stressing out about a deadline at work because you have an implicit promise that says, I am the type of person who achieves success no matter the cost. It's a value, it's an implicit promise. And so the promises that you make to others and to to yourself define who you are. And here we have God making promises. You want to understand who God is? Look at his promises. God promises Abram that he will make him into a great nation, that he will give him a great name, and that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. He is this God with integrity and authority, all-powerful and trustworthy. He is relational, and he chooses to bless. He chooses to share his glory. He chooses to make a great name for others, not just for himself. And so Abram responds, verse 4, and says this. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot, Lot, his nephew, went with him, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And so uh, Abram responds in faith. 
I want to talk about faith for just a moment. What is faith? Faith is to live in light of the promises of God. Faith is to live in light of the promises of God. Faith in our culture, though, has not been described as living in light of the promises of God. Faith is usually understood as something that ignorant people have who happen to be superstitious. Faith is this, this belief in something that you can't see is the way that our world looks at faith and snubs their nose at it. They see faith as ignorant and superstitious and science as rational and certain. And this is because faith has become synonymous with the word, the modern definition of the word belief or even just an inner conviction that something is true. And that's the way that we think about faith is I have this inner conviction that God is real, so therefore I am a person of faith. In much the same way that you might have an inner conviction that a jolly man from the North Pole is real, and that makes him real to you. But faith is meant to be very different than belief in the way that we would believe in Santa. Christian faith is not just a mere acquiescence to something that we cannot see, but Christian faith is intended, if you look at Abram's faith, it's intended to be both informed and active. Faith is intended to be informed and active. Christian faith isn't blind faith where you're expected to believe without any proof, but instead Christian faith invites you to look at the evidence. There's all kinds of different ways that you can think about faith. It's not just a asking you to check your brain at the door, but there's all kinds of evidences for the existence of God. You can use me, the evidences that we've used here over the past you know, several months. We talked about the fine-tuning of the universe, how if the universe is, um, uh, any of the, the constants in the universe were just off by the smallest, smallest amount, that the universe would cease to be. Life would be impossible. You can look at the case for the resurrection. Christian and secular scholars both agreed that there was a man named Jesus Christ, that this man had a religious following, and that most of them agree that the tomb was empty on the third day. And and Christian scholars would point to the fact that Jesus appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses as a resurrected man. And I think that there's great reason to believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. And if Jesus is risen from the dead, then if you believe that, then all the rest of your beliefs have to start following after that as well. Abram doesn't just pack up his family and move 800 miles in an ancient culture due to a hunch that God might be talking to him. This isn't, you know, 800 miles from here. I don't know how, I don't know where that is. I'm going to guess, yeah, I'm going to guess like Charlotte, North Carolina, okay? Um, That's a long way from here. And I don't even want to move, I don't want to move to Carolina in general, but um, I I definitely don't want to pack up all my stuff and move to Carolina. Um, Nothing wrong with Carolina, you know. Um, It's just Boston's better. Um, And when you think about Abram moving in this ancient society, there's no roads, 
There's no gas station to stop and get a little drink. There's no um, police force to call if somebody's trying to get you, run you off the road, or steal all of your stuff. There's no reliable GPS system. You have to use the stars to navigate. It's a lot more difficult to, to move your family 800 miles. You wouldn't just do it on a hunch. Abram's faith is informed, but it's also active. A lot of people look at faith like it's something that I believe, but it doesn't really affect my life in any kind of way. So our faith becomes very personal, and it's a personal matter. It's not something that I want to share with anybody else. It's not something that affects my life in any kind of way. Private. But look at Abram. He believed God, and then God told him to move, and so he moved. He couldn't say that he truly had faith in God unless he did what God was telling him to do. This was a very public act. He's moving away from many of his family members. And why? Because God spoke to him and told him. Abram's faith required action, and it required a dependence upon God's promises. The call of Abram to forsake everything and to migrate is very similar to the call of the Christian. Very similar. If you're a Christian, there will come times in your life where you just cannot go with the flow and sacrifice will be required. If you're a Christian, there will come times in your life where you cannot continue to make faith just a personal matter, but it will require you to make a stand or to go against the flow Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 10. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It takes faith in the promises of life, of God, to be willing to lose your life like this. And listen to Mark 10, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for, the, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecution, and in the age to come, eternal life. Our faith means that we trust in the promises of God. And God promises us, us that as we have faith, he will bless us. And all this kind of begs the question, what did Abram do to deserve this? What did Abram do to deserve this awesome blessing of God? That God would make him into a great nation, that God would give him a great land, that God would bless him and make his name great, and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed by him. What did Abram do to deserve this? And the answer, if you're new to the Bible, if you're a regular, you're, this is going to feel old hat. But I want you to imagine this is your first time hearing this story. And some of you, it might be. And the answer here is shocking. It's astonishing. What Abram did to deserve this is astonishing. But Abram did nothing. In fact, Abram is not all that good of a guy. Joshua chapter 24 teaches us that Abram and his family, they worshiped foreign gods. They did not worship the one true God. Yet out of nowhere, the one true God spoke and made Abram his, his people. 
as we go through this chapter, you get this awesome look at the promise of God. And then as you go down a little bit farther, you're introduced to just how slimy a creature Abram is. I mean, he's just a scoundrel. He's a terrible person. Look with me. Verses 4 through 9 is just the story of Abram leaving. And he builds an altar. He seems very faithful. Then you get to verse 10. And it all goes downhill really quickly. There's a famine in the land that uh, Abram's traveling. As he's traveling, there's a famine. And so what does he do? He does what a lot of people would do, and they travel to Egypt. Why do they go to Egypt? It's because Egypt is generally pretty famine-proof. They have the Nile River, and so uh, they are able to farm along the Nile. And so he goes to Egypt to get food because he's afraid that he's going to starve. Now, first of all, God never told him to go to Egypt. This might be a first sign of his doubt that he's not following God, or it could just be setting it up as a prototype for what comes later on in the story. If you know later on in the story, there's another famine, and Abram's uh, children end up going to Egypt again. But here we have Abram traveling to Egypt, and right before he gets into Egypt, he he turns over and he says, Sarai, you're a good-looking woman. That's the way he says it, basically. And I'm afraid that as we go into this nation, they're going to look at you and say, she's attractive. Let's bring her into Pharaoh's harem, and let's just get rid of the guy. And so when we go into Egypt, this is what I want you to tell them. As we go in there, I want you to withhold the truth that you're my wife and just tell them that you're my sister, which is like kind of a half-truth because she's like his half-sister. But it's, it's not the whole truth. Abram is being a scoundrel here. He's withholding and taking away his protection of his wife to save his own skin. And so that's exactly what happens. They go into Egypt and she's taken. Listen, Genesis chapter 12, verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, he said to Sarah's wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. They go in. Sarai is taken into Pharaoh's harem, just as Abraham knew she would be. And then what happens? God is faithful all the same. Because Pharaoh comes down with a plague, And it's revealed to him that, hey, something's not right here. This woman is not just his sister. This woman is his wife. And so God protects Abram even in his unfaithfulness. When you read this story, you have to think, that sounds like a terrible idea, Abram. Where did you get that idea? And you would be correct. It is a terrible idea. Abram is just selfishly giving away his wife to save himself. Not a good person. And that's the exact point. The Bible is not a collection of stories of people to emulate. You might say, I want great faith like Abram. I want to be able to move my my family across the, the country, across the world. I want to follow God no matter what. He's been faithful to me. But then you need to understand that with great faith comes great idiocracy. Because you also might do something dumb like Abram. And you probably have. And you will again. 
And that's the story of the Bible. It's not a collection of heroes to emulate. It's a collection of messed up folks who are responding to God's kindness and his faithfulness. God is faithful all the same. Is he not for you, church? Are you a royal mess up here? Do you, have you done anything to deserve the calling and the promises that God has given you? Or are you over and over again following your own idiocracy and being rescued by a God who is faithful to his promises, who is true, who is kind, who is loving, who is patient, who is pursuing, and who is after you? If you're a Christian here today, you know that it's not because God saw anything perfect, uh, particularly lovely and wonderful about you in your natural straight state, but rather he called out to you when you were going your own way and he gave you the promise of eternal life. And the last thing I want you to see in this passage is that God's promises to Abram extend to us through Christ. There's actually a lot about this little passage in the New Testament when you look at it. And God promises Abram here that in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How's he going to bless all the families of the earth through one man? How is he going to do this? And there's this theme in the scripture that goes like this. Through the one, many are blessed. Through the one, many are blessed. And what we find as we navigate this theme is that really common in scripture for there to be an immediate fulfillment of a promise or a prophecy and then subsequent greater fulfillments. It's kind of like when my family went to Yosemite National Park several years ago. I love Yosemite. I've been like three times at this point. But um, as you're driving to Yosemite, there's a lot of really beautiful scenery And you have to think over and over again as you go, you know you're driving into this beautiful place. And you think, we're there. This is awesome. This is amazing. We are there. And then you keep driving, and it's like the same, but better. And then it's more of the same, but better. And then it's more of the same, but better. And then you finally get to the valley, and you're like, oh, I'm there. This is it. And this is what we see in the scriptures, is you have an immediate fulfillment Abram did become the father of a great nation, Israel. Many people were blessed in the ancient world through this nation, through this man. He did get a great land, this promised land that Israel was founded in. But then when you look further, there's more and more fulfillments of that until you get to Christ, who is the even greater fulfillment, the same but better. Listen to the words of Jesus. He says this, John chapter eight. Your father Abraham, he's talking to the Pharisees, and Jesus says this, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to Jesus, you're not yet 50 and have seen Abraham? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So what do the Pharisees do? They picked up rocks, and they were about to stone him. And then Jesus pulls one of his classic ninja moves and gets out of there before they get a chance to. It's not his time yet. 
And then we're taught in Galatians chapter three. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs to this promise, Genesis chapter 12 promise, according to his promise. When I was a kid, uh, I, ever, I went to vacation Bible school. We didn't go to church much when I was a kid, but I, like, I grew up in a very Christian-y area in the South, and we went to vacation Bible school. Anybody ever go to vacation Bible school? All right, we have a few. It's like, it's like a camp for church with little kids, basically, is what it is. They teach you the Bible. And we would sing this song, uh, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had? Oh, it's just a single, I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just have some fun. Praise the Lord, yeah. I don't know it. It's been a while. But it's basically the hokey pokey for Christians, okay? Then you say, right arm, Father Abraham. I don't know why you do that. It doesn't make any sense, you know? And when I'm a kid, I had no biblical knowledge. So I'm coming to church, like, Father Abraham, let's go, all right? I don't, I don't know. I'm just like waving my arms and my legs and dancing all around. I'm like, it's like a hokey pokey. It's the church version of the hokey pokey. And I'm ready to go. It never made a lick of sense to me at all. I wasn't in seminary. I, I was in seminary before I understood that song. And that, you know, shame on VBS teachers, I suppose, you know, like uh, I should call them um, and say, hey, guys, teach me who Abraham is. You know, they probably were. I, I wasn't listening. I was just like, right arm, let's go. Let's have some fun. Um, but the scriptures are really clear. That's actually, an, uh, uh, <laughs> it's odd that's a children's song, but it's an interesting song. Because in Christ, you become an heir to the promises of Abraham. You become one of his children. Now I get it. When I trust in Christ, all the promises of God that he made throughout history, I now get to partake in them. I become the recipient of the promises of God. I am part of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. God promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation in Christ and that he would bless all nations. And in Christ, all nations are blessed. God promised Abraham that he would give him a land. And one day, in Christ, we will inherit a land. He's gone before us to prepare room for us. God, is, God promised to make Abram's name great, and he did. But at the name of Jesus Christ, all knees will bow, and all tongues will declare that Jesus is Lord. I get to rest assured that God will never leave me or forsake me. I get to trust in the promises that, I, that he's made throughout all scripture. As someone who is in Christ, I know that God is going to finish the work that he's begun in me. As someone who is in Christ, I know that he has promised eternal life to me. I know that he's promised a grand inheritance to me. Through Jesus, through the one, many are blessed. It's this pattern that he laid down from the very beginning, that through one, many are blessed. Not because I deserve it, not because Abram deserved it, because I, but because he has given me faith in Christ. And so church family, 
I, I want to encourage you with this as, as we finish this up. Where is God faithful to his promises? What promises do you need to hold on to this week? What are you going through? Where do you need to not just have this inner conviction that God is real, but a real life trust that he cares and a real life trust that he's going to see you through? We all need that. What are you facing that requires faith? Your faith isn't real unless it's demanded upon. And many of us are going through things that require faith. And so I encourage you today to depend upon him, to step out in faith. Some of us might need to make a public step in one way or another. You need to take your private faith and to act upon it to say, I am a Christian. I'm going to do this. Maybe you need to trust in Christ for the first time. This sounds interesting to you. Maybe you've been coming for a while, but you're like, I finally get it. I understand the gospel. I understand faith. As we come to the communion table today, we're reminded of who God is and what he's promised to do for us, how he's been faithful time and again, and he will continue to be faithful church family. And so if you're a Christian here today, I encourage you to take communion as a step of trust and faith that he has been faithful and that he will always be faithful. And as we take this communion, we're reminded that his body was broken for us and that his blood was shed for us. And we do this in remembrance of him. Let's stand as we prepare to receive this meal, reminded of the promises of God, and pray. Father, we we pray that um, as we receive this meal, that you would remind us of how you're faithful, of how you're true, of how you're good, of all the promises that you've given to us, that you'll never leave us or forsake us, that you're going to finish the work that you've started in, in us, that All things work out for the good of those who have been called according to your purpose. And God, we pray that you would create character within us and give us a hope that does not disappoint. And God, as we receive this meal, may we receive um, your presence, your blessing. May we be reminded of that and help us to be faithful, even in our faithlessness. In Christ's name we pray, amen.